Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, the subject of uh, the geopolitics of minerals, especially as we ponder decarbonization, have taken center stage. Most of us think primarily of uh, minerals that are critical to decarbonization, but of course, uh, all other metals are affected. And, and so I thought we would speak to the World Gold Council and get uh, the perspective of the Wales Gold Council of this broad issue. To that effect, my guest today is John Mulligan. John leads the World Gold Council's program on gold and climate change, where he has been working for in different capacities for up to 17 years. Among others, John has been involved in shaping and delivering many aspects of the Council's diverse outputs and activities. This includes market analysis, investor and stakeholder engagement strategies. More recently, he has focused on research to advance the World Gold Council's understanding of gold's wider socio-economic and sustainability impact. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila. It's, uh, it's lovely to speak. So, I mean, in the context of decarbonization and climate change, is gold considered a critical or not critical mineral? Well, it's not a critical mineral in terms of demand volumes being driven by um, clean energy infrastructure and and, uh, renewable technologies, what the World Bank has recently dubbed, you know, climate smart mining. It isn't critical in that sense. Um, That said, electrification will likely boost technology demand for gold simply because there is more, much more gold in an electrified vehicle than there is in a combustion engine vehicle. But gold, I think, can be considered critical in a different sense in that in helping drive decarbonisation across the gold supply chain, that's all about gold mining. It's all about what gold mining does, particularly with its energy. And as mining companies seek to decarbonise operations, their actions will have wider ramifications, wider implications in in driving the use of uh, renewables, across local economies, particularly in remote and developing economies. So in some senses, in some locations, the gold mining industry in seeking to decarbonize itself will assist in decarbonizing the the wider local community or the wider local economy. That's interesting. So uh, let's follow up on a couple of things. So of course, most people, when they think of gold, they think of gold as uh, a store of value are used by Reserve Bank and other investors, but uh, others also think of it as uh, a luxury commodity in the jewelry sense. But what you're saying is that as we move towards uh, e-vehicles, we find that certain component parts will consume more gold. Can you just shed a bit more light onto that? Because I think that is a very little known fact. Yeah, so so about you know, eight to 10% of annual demand for gold comes from technology, and most of that is from electronics. Um, now, there's often a, uh, an attempt to substitute that gold for other materials in the electronics, but in key components, so basically on the circuitry boards in, in your car or in the, in the contacts that require safety and durability, the most, the most famous one is frankly the airbag contact. You can't use copper or silver, for conductivity there because it can corrode. So you need gold. And the same for even in high level electronics, you don't want them to fail. 
And in an electrified vehicle, it simply uses a lot more of those electronics. So ensuring you have robust contacts in circuitry boards and the computer elements of an electrified vehicle will undoubtedly require more gold. And that's often hidden. It's a bit like the, you may have heard before, the, the gold in your phones or your smart TVs or smart, smart computers. The gold is used in those elements where you need high performance and you need durability. And like I say, there's more of that in an electrified vehicle than there is in a, in a combustion engine. And, and so uh, is it fair to assume then that uh, as we ramp up production of e-vehicles, demand for gold will uh, rise as has been the case for other minerals? It, it, it will, but it won't be. I mean, the structure of, as I say, the structure of technology demand is, is it's currently and has been for quite some time around eight to 10%. So even with that ramp up, we don't expect to make a structural change to demand in the gold market, but we do expect it to, to increase demand. So it's not going to completely change the structure of the gold market like it has in some other minerals, but it certainly, we see it as a, a substantial growth component. I don't think it's going to be um, a radical change. It's going to result in a radical change in demand. It's just another form of, another potential for growth. So to give uh, the Sheila Palmer Extractive podcast listeners a, a sense of proportion, if we think of uh, the bullion market, the jewelry market, the tooling market, and, and then of course the uh, you know, tech market, what currently would be the percentage split in terms of the uh, market for gold? So currently, I mean, it, it, obviously it varies from year to year in terms of the, the, one of the current drivers of the economy and the local consumer markets. But if we look at a kind of five to 10 year average, you're probably looking around about eight to 10% from technology we just mentioned. You're probably looking to around about 10% from central banks um, who have been sustained purchases for the last decade. Uh, and of that 80%, it's probably a um, varies between a 40-40, a half-and-half half split or a 50-30 split between jewellery. So jewellery is still a large component of gold and the investment market. The investment market is the, the bit that responds most to uh, immediate economic circumstances. So it really depends. If, if I said it was half-and-half, the investment part has been growing, the jewelry part has been recovering, and it really depends on how strong you have consumer sentiment versus basically um, the investor risk perspectives. But the two, yeah. big, the two big components are, as you say, investment demand, and that's both bar and coin demand, and now institutional investment demand via the physically backed, what we call gold exchange traded funds. So these big funds that have gold, in them that appeal to professional investors uh, and then bar and coin demand. That's the kind of big chunk of investment demand. That can be up to, as I say, of that physical consumer market, or uh, it can be up to half if the, if the investment um, demand is strong, usually because of a risk perspectives, meaning if the market is under stress or a local, a local economy is under stress, investors often turn to gold. But over the longer term, the slightly bigger portion is still jewellery. So it's kind of, that's where it is. The jewellery and investment is big. The central bank and the technology is a little smaller, but still fairly strong and fairly stable. That's interesting. So you, you made mention of uh, the indirect positive contribution 
that uh, the gold miners seek to have in the environment in which they mine by helping decarbonize uh, mining and therefore de facto the overall environment. Can you talk a little about that? What are some of the things that um, gold miners are looking to, to reduce carbon emissions, especially level one emissions? So it's, a, it's, it's if you're looking to decarbonize the whole gold value chain, and we spent, you know, there's kind of the, the research program is now fairly, is, is, is at least five years old, I think, and we've got some fairly detailed data on this. So first of all, if you look to say, well, what is the carbon footprint of the overall gold sector? So from gold mining to all of the demand I've just mentioned, um, it's all about mining. That's where the carbon, the, the carbon is, the carbon emissions come from. Um, it's not about what we call scope three downstream, and, and I, you mentioned level one. I think so. You mean I think scope one. Yes. And scope, so scope one and scope two emissions are the, where, where frankly, all of gold's emissions reside, and that's quite unusual. Just to differentiate it between both other mined products and other assets, if you think about another mined product, um, it's not the production that they may generate all of the emissions. It's often the consumption or it's how it's used. So even if you're even if you're producing aluminium, you, that aluminium may go into the body of a car or an aeroplane, which will then generate further emissions. With gold, that's not the case. It's all about the mine. And if you look in more detail, it's all about how the mine, or 80% of it, is uh, how the mine generates or consumes electricity. Now, that's split into two. The how you generate electricity on site if you haven't got access to a grid, and of course, in many circumstances, particularly in developing and remote locations, developing economies, remote sites, you may not have any access to any electricity, so you have to generate your own. That, and that typically is done, certainly uh, historically, via diesel and heavy fuel oil generators, sometimes at very large scale. Um, it may in some, some cases mean you're plugged into a grid, but then the question is how carbon intensive is that grid? Is that electricity grid that you're plugged into um, coal powered, for instance? Um, so we modeled all of that. We've got all of that data and said, oh, well, let's look at what change can be made and specifically what impacts those changes will have. If you moved, for instance, a percentage of your um, power away from diesel and to solar, for instance, and solar has been a, a leading um, tool used by gold mining to decarbonize. What does that mean in terms of your decarbonization pathway? And we've been able to, to, to plot the forward pathway and start to look at those changes. So the changes are in some ways quite simple. It means that to decarbonize gold, um, it's certainly accessible, it's well understood. I must say gold mining CEOs wince whenever I say it's simple. Um, but nonetheless, I think we know what needs to be done. And that is that that if you're generating power on site to drive operations, you need to move away from the fossil fuels I mentioned. You need to move to renewables and the renewables that have dominated so far have been solar and increasingly wind. And to ensure energy security and stability, you probably need to start to look also to battery storage. Um, so that's the kind of the things that are currently happening and they are happening very fast. The other aspect, in addition to changing the technology at the mine site in terms of the, the uh, power technology, is can you have an influence or drive change in terms of the 
how are you connected to it if you're connected to a grid and we've seen that may require policy influence i think that the south african example is quite key where you have what was previously a, a monopoly situation in terms of escom and power that was coal powered still is primarily coal powered but the ability for the gold miner to generate their own power to move away from the coal power and say we want to generate our own and we want to use renewables that's suddenly developed because of changing policy and some of that policy some of it at least will be driven by the influence uh, of the precious metals mining sector in particular saying to the government we need to decarbonize one because we need to retain investment that may move away if we're seen as carbon intensive but the good thing is um, by being able to generate more power from renewables, you start to also encourage a renewables industry in the country. And we're seeing, I mean, I was out in South Africa three weeks ago and saw a solar array being built and developed at speed because the ability to move from generating 10 megawatts to 100 megawatts from renewables has been allowed in the new policy changes. So I think policy influence, self-generation is, is key. And if you're really in a remote area and you're um, workforce is drawn from a local community, there is also the potential to bring that clean energy to that community. And that's something we're seeing start to develop now. Um, mm. if, you look at, if you look at Burkina Faso and the, the Essekana project, um, it's a joint venture with the government. So the, the actual um, the solar array, the largest solar, solar uh, plant in the country, that is, has the potential to bring power to its people as well as to the mine. That's interesting. So, so really, you've said a mouthful, but I think they are very. It, it's worth just uh, highlighting some of the key messages. The first, though, you don't mention it directly, is that when you have particularly uh, large companies with the capacity to uh, influence the kind of policies uh, that uh, you know are designed in host countries then you know they can be a positive force the other is that uh even if they don't have influence but have the wherewithal to create standalone uh power generation capacity uh they have the option to go clean which in the end contributes to an overall reduction of emissions but the second thing that you said which i think uh you know being in the industry uh you might take for granted is that of course people talk of mining uh, but they forget that there are different minerals with a different value chain and that value chain, depending on the metal, also speaks to the level in the value chain at which you find the most intense uh, energy uh, emissions. And that understanding this, uh, from what you're saying, gold is primarily upstream and, and there is where the mining is. I, I find that uh, very interesting because uh, the world makes mining too simplistic uh, and, and forget that actually we are dealing with different industries. Let me come back to the World Gold Council itself. So you are a member organization. So does this imply then that the Gold Council has a, a policy that its members subscribe to with respect to decarbonization and how to reduce those uh, emissions upstream? 
So it's it's a good question, um, and the the short answer is we whilst I wouldn't describe it as a policy, we uh, all of our members and the members uh, thirty two companies now representing certainly in terms of corporate um, corporate formalized or industrialized production probably around 60% of annual production in the world. So a, a substantial amount of the world's gold is produced by our members. And they now all are um, adhering to and currently um, starting to report on something we call the responsible gold mining principles. So that's 51 principles um, bucketed under 10 umbrella principles covering the whole ESG spectrum. And there is a commitment there in there to, to climate and decarbonization. But more recently, they have also signed up to um, something called TCFD. Uh, I don't know if you or your listeners are aware, but TCFD, the Task Force uh, on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, has become, or is certainly in some jurisdictions, becoming the default way on which corporate entities are obliged to report on climate. And by agreeing as part of membership to report, it means that our, all our companies need to, one, measure their their climate, their sorry, their carbon uh, positions have a plan in terms of how they might transition them and move towards decarbonisation, and they have to disclose that publicly in a way which is recommended by the TCFD guidelines. So that has meant that, frankly, all of them have to start addressing these issues. Now, our membership varies widely between some some of the majors and now more recently some quite small companies some one or two asset um, one or two mine companies so they're on a different different part of the journey um, it's fair to say that some of the majors frankly are ahead of the curve they're already defining their commitments but also actually defining their transition plans and i think you, we hear an awful lot in the climate world about commitments what it really when it gets down to the nitty gritty, we basically need to see action plans. And some of the majors are already have already done that. They've already said, "This is our. This is what we're going to do. This is how we uh, um, envisage moving towards decarbonisation." Some of our other members have just started, uh, and they've just started um, to build capacity. And this is true of any, frankly, not just the, the gold mining sector. Even the, it's true of the mining sector more broadly. Um, I'm involved on a number of working groups. In, in the broader mining industry, looking at climate change issues. And I think it's fair to say it's true of pretty, all, pretty much all sectors. They're starting to embark on this journey and build capacity to understand what is my carbon footprint, but then very importantly, what is my pathway to decarbonization? So as I say, the World Gold Council members are, are now committed to reporting on that. And as part of our role at the World Gold Council, it, to help facilitate that, we started by frankly, just arriving at better data. And I think you'll hear this time and time again, there's an awful lot of, uh, there's an awful lack of consistent coherent data out there in terms of knowing what to measure, how to measure it and how to build your plans. So we, so we, we started out by saying, we, we will map out from a high level, the, 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 the um, decarbonization pathway for gold mining, but also then we'll start to look at it in some detail. And so some of the data I've mentioned is built on us looking at member member mines. We looked at over, over 150 mines, I think, looking at exactly what they're doing, what their current plans are, and what they might be, and sort of setting out a pathway to the future. So the short answer is, yes, the World Gold Council is, is committed to decarbonization. We, how we facilitate, how we, how we support the membership really varies. Some of them 
frankly probably don't need our support they're they're pretty progressive and pretty advanced in their plans and actions others it's definitely a case of helping well better data defining what solutions might look like defining some of the um some of the ways to approach these problems where you haven't got in-house capacity and i think that's frankly not just true of gold mining i think it's true of of a lot of other sectors and certainly the wider mining sector this idea of building capacity to put you in a position where you're able to act and act credibly and i think that's the difference one of the positive experiences i have of the gold sector is a lot of gold mining ceos and leaders have said we want to act credibly we're not we're not going to commit to actions unless we can achieve those actions, but we are committed to the objective. So the actions are on the table. We just need to build the plans. And that's kind of, I think, for some companies where we are now. That's interesting because um, when you contrast, first of, first of all, the uh, large mining companies in the gold industry that may have the capacity to champion their own course and, and gather data, but then others who are not, but is it not fair also to say that uh, part of the benefit of having these large gold mining companies as your members is that they become a source of expertise. And so, uh, you know, the, the World Gold Council also benefit from having that kind of uh, high level uh, capacity in terms of technology policy and the capacity to spearhead certain initiatives that may otherwise not be in the industry's domain. Uh, it, it is Sheila, and, and thank, thank you for pointing that out. It is the, the we do, uh, you know, in a in a kind of non-preferential way, we do try and uh, encourage knowledge sharing. If if there's a shared goal, uh, and and it's an area where we it will benefit broader society uh, and not only the members but the, but the the gold mining sector, and by that I mean the gold mining sector and its broad set of stakeholders and you pointed out yourself that I think people underestimate how, how complex and how wide the set of stakeholders are and for gold that's particularly why because it's an extremely diverse metals market compared to some others. Um, we do that, that knowledge sharing that capacity facilitating uh, several for instance um, we didn't used to do this and I saw I've been at the World Gold Council as you mentioned quite a while uh, 10 or 15 years ago, um, probably around then, we started to look to the membership, look to the miners and say, what can we do as a body to advance this industry that we don't think you can do as individual companies? And, the, and so we, st we started, as you, you may remember, something called the conflict-free gold standard, which was kind of our response to the, to the issues uh, that were raised in the US in particular around gold being potentially defined as a conflict mineral. And, and we said, we need to to do something about this, but we need to do something to allow responsible miners to be able to demonstrate that they are behaving responsibly and that that can have beneficial consequences for e economies and communities, even in potentially conflict affected areas. And by doing that, that allowed us to then say as a body, because as you say, very rightly, that we have this broad set of expertise, a very wide set of experiences covering the whole globe, that we could actually start to, to pull that expertise together and try and advance the whole sector. Um, so that's very much how the World Gold Council has evolved. It's tried to look at now at the whole value chain from mine to market and frankly turn back to the miners and sometimes say, we think these are risks and issues that you may be unaware of. These are things we think you should be doing that you may not 
be a priority. Um, I've said it many, many times, but it's a long way from where gold is mined to where it's consumed, apart from in China. Um, and being aware of that, being aware of the, the implications, um, both from consumer perspectives, but also from explaining to consumers, investors, the, the complexity of the supply chain and the benefits that gold mining can bring, um, I think is, is kind of part of what we do. Mm. So you, you make mention of the importance of credibility uh, uh, and, and you also made mention of the notion of responsible gold uh, mining, etc. Uh, I mean, I wonder whether as you conduct research and use this information essentially to uh, introduce initiatives that help your membership uh, shift the needle in terms of uh, carbon intensity, whether you have encountered any resistance towards the data you put out there on grounds that it's self-serving. My experience uh, often is that uh, when an industry takes the lead to try and, and effectively raise the bar, the assumption is that it cannot be credible because the work is coming from inside. Have you had that experience? And if so, how do you deal with it? It's, it's a really good question. And it's something that we are and have always been mindful of. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's very important for us that we, so we, when we do our research, generally what happens is we, we don't perform the core research. We, um, even in the climate space, every single piece of research that I've been responsible ultimately for, for publishing, the data has been compiled, the analysis has been done by an independent third party. Um, and when we started, and it's a really good point, because when we started looking at climate, it was actually not the mining industry that, that drove it. It was the institution investors of scale. It was, frankly, sovereign wealth funds and pension funds in particular. We said, you know, if you're going to talk about gold as an investment and gold as a, as a risk mitigation asset, we actually want to talk about ESG credentials and, and particularly climate. What can you tell us? And at the time, we could tell them very little. Um, so we looked around what, what data was out there and so on. And we realized it was partial and, and not that good. So we, we went and tried to do some research of our own. But we, uh, we were very mindful of, of, of what you say, that what we would produce, would it be credible? So we, uh, and this is, a, this is a process we generally do now, we um, uh, talked to some academics and we said, we would like you to be our academic challengers. Meaning if we're gonna say something and publish something, we want it to be credible from your point of view as an external um, reviewer or audience. And, and that was very useful. I mean, so we, for instance, in the first work, and we mentioned it already, this idea of scope three downstream, we said, we think down, gold's downstream emissions are relatively small. We're pretty, fairly confident that's the case. And the, and the academics came back and said, don't say it unless you can measure it. Mm. And so we actually, had to, we actually had to remove that from the first, if you, we have published, um, like I say, we're on our fifth uh, research report, substantial research report, but we removed pretty much most of the lines about downstream emissions from the first report because they said, until you've done the work, um, you know, don't say it uh, because we we want you know we we insist as as academic professionals and having a you know professional reputation that we won't be associated with this, and that's a process we generally do. We generally say to each each um, 
research agency and now we've used a, a, a wide range of globally recognized agencies this is independent research you have to be comfortable that your name's going to be attached with it it's not just ours so um yeah it's it i'm i always think of being whatever we do should be data-led and research-led that's my my kind of um background and my ethos um and it has to be most of it's the core work is performed by an independent third party so okay. they are they are comfortable saying we think this and and frankly when it comes to being tested and, and you're absolutely right we do get tested on this we often turn back to the agency are you and say are you willing to defend it without us um yeah. so it's a key i think it has to be because i agree entirely we often say we're, we're not purely a, a, um, a trade association here to advocate we do some of that but actually to move the needle as you mentioned we think we we whatever we do has to be credible it has to be trusted and because a lot of what we do is in the institutional investment space and comes with a natural built-in cynicism dare i say where we know the world gold council there's certain things where the people will say you're expected we, we expected you to say that you say well here's the data here's the numbers we'll go away make your own conclusions and we, we can come back and talk so building credibility building trust uh, um, engaging with independent third parties absolutely in our dna that's that's good to know so um i want to uh, talk about uh overall sentiment so i think it's fair to say that ironically uh in part because we want to decarbonize the world as the world realizes that we can't do this without metallic substances. Uh, the impact has been that actually mining has been given, I believe, a shot in the arm, both in terms of mining being seen as part of a solution rather than the problem, but also as in mining being able to attract capital uh, from investors uh, looking to benefit from the boom, at least with respect to critical uh, minerals. And I wanted to get a sense from you of whether, given that, you know, give and take about 50% of uh, the uh, gold market is made up investors, are you seeing any shift that may be linked to money seeking to be placed in, uh, energy transition critical minerals and away from gold or uh, it's much of a muchness so again it's a, a, a very um, topical point um and I, I think it goes back to well there's two aspects to it to the answer uh, if you if you let me um there is undoubtedly the energy transition metals are, are in the commodity space are a hot item and they have driven great interest. And we, as we both know, um, more metals are needed to drive the transition, much more metals. So, so investors are increasingly becoming aware of this. I, I think that still, I think that message still needs to be amplified that frankly, that you can't have um, an energy transition without a lot more mining. Um, then the question becomes the nature of the mining. For gold, I think that, there's, that you were talking about investors, but of course, investing in gold takes kind of two key forms. You can invest in the activity of producing gold, but the majority of the gold market actually isn't the mining market. It's gold as an asset. And gold as an asset um, 
is somewhat independent of normal supply and demand, demand dynamics. It's, it's gold is the only mined product that's a mainstream asset that has a monetary role. Uh, and that means that even investing in gold mining, it can often attract a different set of investors because its value is not necessarily tied to demand patterns and industrial cycles. So even the, the industrial cycles will be reshaped by the energy transition, but what drives investors to gold differs. Um, it's also, as I say, even investing in gold mining, you find that often um, becomes more attractive when gold itself is performing well. And gold is often performing well for completely different reasons. It's often performing well because of what else is happening in the broader economy or what's happening in capital markets. So, so I think there's a difference there. So when, when you're talking about the energy transition uh, and what it means to the economy, yes, I think from the commodity uh, and metal space, it will increase demand. It will also, however, likely generate greater volatility. And that's frankly because we're moving into, into technologies that, that have to be developed very rapidly. We're moving into uh, investors who have to seek to decarbonize the, their portfolios more generally in ways they've never had to do before uh, and we're seeking sorry and we'll probably see impacts on asset classes from climate that that are very difficult to forecast because we're entering into into a whole new world in terms of physical impacts and what that means for assets and so from an investment perspective from gold as an asset there is a strong case that that the its traditional role as a risk mitigation asset may be actually reinforced because you've got all of these risks coming in that have never been there before to investment to investments to asset classes and golds um, relatively disconnected from them. It's relatively robust. Our last climate research was looking at this. Was looking at okay, how does gold perform as an asset when you try and model it compared to other assets? as investors seek to decarbonize their portfolios. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a fairly strong case to say, you might start to consider gold, physical gold, as a, as a climate risk mitigation asset. That said, it's, sorry, that said, that is also dependent on the actions, we, to go back to the start of the conversation, it's also dependent on the actions of gold miners to continue to, divert, to, to, continue to decarbonize. Because when we talk to those investors, even though you know, the, 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 the amount of um, newly mined gold contributing to the stocks of investment gold is relatively small. It's, you know, there's what if it's three and a half thousand tons of gold comes onto the market every year. Technically, well, theoretically, there's 200,000 tons of gold. So newly mined gold isn't the whole story. But investors, when they start to become increasingly aware of sustainability impacts and climate, start to also become aware of that gold is a mined product. And therefore, you have to start to say, well, let's look back upstream and look at what can, what can be decarbonized. Uh, and uh, and this is one of the aspects you mentioned sentiment one of the aspects at the moment regarding consumer sentiment is a kind of rush to neutralize what you own i can say i don't want to own things that are that are carbon intensive um and and bullying technically the physical product isn't carbon intensive but you also want to invest in decarbonization you want to invest in industries that may be relatively high carbon now but can physically contribute to decarbonization. And so one of the messages you mentioned, our relationship with our members, one of our relation, one of the messages we often relay back to them 
is your decarbonization actions can have consequences because if you can decarbonize your production, you are actually decarbonizing the whole value chain. And that means that the investor at the end of that may start to see that the asset they own is, uh, has positive attributes in terms of its carbon profile. So that, that was a fairly complex answer, but it's a fairly, you can see there's a fairly, there's two sides to it. There's the mine side, there's the asset side, and then there's the relationship between them. And that relationship is, is the decarbonization pathway, I think. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a detailed response uh, to a complex issue. But I think you make the point very well, which is that there's investors who invest in the mining activity and those who invest in gold as a store of value and an asset. And, and, and these markets are subject to completely different dynamics. Uh, though to your point, uh, the intersection of the need to decarbonize uh, cannot be completely discounted because in some form or another, it does drive value and it does impact uh, sentiment. But I was curious, I mean, it's one thing, we, we spoke about 50 plus or minus uh, percentage of the market in say, um, the remaining 80% being in either the investor space or the jewelry space. Jewelry, of course, is a luxury commodity. Would it be fair to say there gold might suffer the same vulnerability as other luxury commodities uh, where we to perceive gold as not sustainable or not investor uh, environmentally friendly or in any way offending the ESG uh, you know, suite of principles? It, it's it's a I think it's something which is becoming more and more of an issue. Um, so um, so for complete disclosure, I also wear another hat. I am the um, president of the Sustainable Development Commission for the World Jewelry Confederation. I was recently offered that role, and I was and I was happy to accept it because of the question you just asked. Because I think in the luxury goods market there is a, a response, a growing response to the expectations of consumers about, frankly, some of it's about carbon and climate. A lot of it is about broader responsible sourcing issues. The idea of, is my product responsible? And um, how you evidence that, how you demonstrate it is something, it's one of the drivers uh, in terms of when we formulated the responsible gold mining principles, we said to our miners, we know that you're doing a lot of, a lot of this good practice, a lot of these responsible, um, practices are already in place, but we want you to report on them publicly and to be independently uh, uh, audited, if you like, um, because we think consumers are going to be increasingly demanding it. We think in in consumers are going to be increasingly saying, um, well, when I buy something, I want to know um, what we call the provenance of the product or, or it's that, that it was definitely produced with and you know in um, produce using responsible and sustainable business practices etc so it was kind of a key driver um, when we, we do quite a lot of uh, retail consumer research we asked the jewelry industry well we asked the jewelry consumers and the, and, and the retail investment um, consumers you know why do you buy gold what is the what are the issues are ESG credentials um, a primary driver and to date, to be honest, it's becoming increasingly more important. I think it's still not a primary driver globally. I think in pockets, uh, uh, particularly in, in the developed world, you're starting to get a lot of the luxury brands, uh, which you mentioned, um, make 
very strong public commitments to responsible sourcing uh, and to um, to decarbonizing their sources. Um, the challenge for the industry uh, for mining is to be able to respond to those. Uh, and I think from a goal, from a from the gold mining sector, from the formal gold mining sector, the responsible gold mining principles is a is a very strong response to those demands. Um, there are other issues regarding sustainability, um, sorry, sustainable development impacts, which I think are just starting to be understood. Um, and that is often consumers seeing one particular issue relating to a, a product or a, or a mineral and, and requiring greater transparency on it. So, but I think you're, the, the, the spirit of the question, you're absolutely right. Um, the need for greater trust in products, greater provenance, greater transparency, I think is absolutely a growing trend. I don't think it dominates globally yet. I think it's not, if you go to, a, go to Asia, I think it's just starting to, to, to kind of percolate and grow. But I think it, it's a driver that the whole industry has to be mindful of. I think gold itself, the gold supply chain, is in a reasonably strong place. When it when we talk to the about the formal industrial sector or the formal supply chain, because you have a range of um, initiatives that basically say, from responsible gold mining principles from the mining sector, responsible gold guidance from the refining sector. From the jewellery sector, responsible jewellery council, uh, and as I say, uh, increasingly the World Jewellery Confederation and some national organisations, they're starting now to raise the priority of this. So I think the consumer will make the demand. I think the challenge, and hopefully one that is being responded to, the challenge is that to, to be able to tr transparently say to the consumer, this is where your product comes from, or these are the ways in which it was produced, and they are demonstrably responsible and sustainable. I think I think that is a big trend. Absolutely. So here's my uh, last question to you. Of course, we know that uh, in the uh, energy transition critical minerals, China dominates the world in terms of both uh, uh, production at home and uh, procurement in different parts of the world. Uh, we also know that uh, China is the world's largest producer of gold and has been for some time. Uh, in some industries, uh, this has caused a bit of tension geopolitically. Uh, and I wanted to get a sense from you uh, of how the Chinese dominance in the gold production uh, space is playing out in terms of uh, decarbonization and other sustainable development related issues? So I think the, the, the role of China uh, in terms of the gold industry, uh, in the gold market, should I say, is, is in some ways quite remarkable. If you think that, that gold is embedded in Chinese culture for absolutely centuries, but in the modern era, it was relatively uh, suppressed until uh, the early 2000s when, when the gold market started to open and the World Gold Council was involved in that opening up of the gold market. It has grown uh, quite remarkably. But in terms of dominance, I think it's, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that Chinese gold production is remarkably similar to Russian production or Australian production. Now they're very similar in terms of production levels and they do not, none of them dominate. It's a far more diversified market. So if you look at, the, I think all of them, the, certainly China, China, Russia, Australia, they're all around nine or 10%. So this is a long way from, you know, the concentrated supply we had in the, in the 70s from South Africa. There's no one real dominant source. 
And in terms of China's influence on the market, it's rather um, an integrated but insular market because it still imports a lot of gold. It, it consumes all the gold it produces and it imports gold and it has a very substantial growth in consumption. So it, it, in terms of globally, I think it's significant in terms of it was a key aspect to the way that the gold market grew since the 2000s. Um, but I don't think it actually is um, disruptive in the sense of changing the market dynamics, except basically being a key growth market. Um, I think if you know, I think it's worth bearing in mind from a gold mining point of view that the growth story of the last decade is actually an African story. I mean, if we look across across the continent and gold production volumes across the continent, they've soared nearly 60%. I think it's 58.7% in my measurement from 2010. And in some countries, um, Burkina Faso, Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, etc., that's doubled or trebled. So when it comes to, to gold and the contribution to those economies, the last decade has actually been a defining period. China's actually been fairly stable uh, and gold production has actually slipped slightly because of the higher environmental um, uh, requirements. Um, so I think that the, 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 the big story and the dynamic story, probably from a growth from gold mining and gold production probably isn't the Chinese story. I think it's an African story. Um, I think China is, is significant because it has led the way in developing a gold market that's integrated uh, and, and fairly transparent. I think over the last five years, you've seen an absolute shift in those Chinese gold mining companies um, understanding that they have to be uh, adapt international performances, international performance standards uh, on um, sustainability and responsible practices. I think that's, that is been a major shift um, and they are now talking about reporting um, you know we are encouraged them we have four Chinese members the large larger Chinese gold mining companies are now members of the World Gold Council and they have made commitments to report uh, in, a, in the same fashion as the other members so I think that's a that's a major shift in terms of transparency in terms of commitment to what we call ESG but I don't think that there's a dominance there um, from the supply side in the way there is for other metals um, it, is, it is it is it is a significant market, but uh, but I don't think there's any kind of concentration risk from that's China. A, that's fantastic, and, and you are right, of course, about the African story, uh, because most people associate uh, gold production with South Africa, understandably, because of longevity and, and scale over uh, more than a century. But uh, most people may not be aware of the role that West Africa. Uh, yes. has placed in recent years, leading to Ghana now being number six in the world or thereabouts and leading the African production. So you, it, it's a good point to make. Well, John, this has been absolutely fascinating. I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you and thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast uh, to have this uh, very in insightful conversation. Thank you, Sheila. It's been an absolute pleasure.